You're listening to Fox on the Wire podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to part two of episode number 32 of my chat with Michael Yule. Thanks for tuning in. Here we go. Yeah, did my did my first foray into live streaming last night, as as I've mentioned before, and as you've mentioned uh, mentioned to me a number of times, I've got some incredible audio gear out there, and um, obviously I've I've got a lot of experience in the field, so could do any number of things, and yet um, I felt like such a complete newbie doing um, doing it. Now I've I've filmed plenty of live streams in the past. Um, mostly for my events business, Impact Events, uh, we've, we've had people playing and I'll often get up there and do a live video and some of them do amazingly well, get a huge response and, um, and sound and look fantastic. But when you're specifically setting up to do a live stream, when it's not just incidental, like, oh, hey, let's get some video of this thing that's already happening. And instead you yep. go... I'm going to deliberately set up to sing to my phone or to sing to this camera. It's, um, it's pretty strange. And I'd watched, yeah. a, I'd watched a few, um, some of which made me not want to do a live stream at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I kind of figured when, when all of this happened and everybody was like, oh, hey, it's all good. We can all just jump online and do a live stream. Now, call me... Um, I don't know what the... Actually, I can't think of the word, but call, call me cynical. But I was kind of thinking, look, if, if people don't want... If they're not going to come and see you live, if they don't want to see you perform at your best in person, what, what makes you think necessarily that they're going to spend their time and their bandwidth watching you through their screen? Because although, yes, it, it, you could argue that it's more convenient um, or it's easier access, it's also worse quality and it still takes the same amount of time and effort to, you know, sit there and listen to somebody. So you might get some casual views, but I just kind of went, ah, I don't, I don't want to do this for the sake of it. I don't just want to jump on there and fill a hole and just go, hey, here's me, but in your phone now instead of in your face. <laughs> So it took me a couple of weeks to, to think about it. And I'd seen some, I'd, I'd watched Amy. Amy's been working on stuff like this for a long time. And she's, she's asked me for some tips and tricks along the way. She's learned a whole bunch of stuff that I could probably do with asking her now. And um, similar to what you're doing now, like she wears headphones. She's got a, um, a good quality. She's got an SM7B, you know, the, the Shure broadcast mm-hmm. mic running into uh, an interface that then links up with her computer that then runs out to something else that then live streams to whatever she's going for, Twitch or Facebook or Instagram, and then she can also check her comments live. And um, I did none of that. I, I kind of went, okay, um, this is all daunting enough as it is. Let's try and get a good-looking angle with my phone. I decided I was going to stream using my phone. It seemed like it was the best quality thing I was going to get and um, I thought I won't try and get too fancy off the get-go I had options to run other sound devices into my phone but in the end I just got one of my little PA systems and set it up like I was doing a low volume gig so that I had some foldback and some sense of you know I could 
uh, I could change the volume of my vocal and my guitar to to make it come across okay did a bunch of private tests and then eventually went that sounds pretty good to me that looks pretty good to me and just played as though it was a gig and what you hear through the phone is just what you would have heard if you were standing in my kitchen there's no direct feed it's just the the phone microphone picking up what's coming out of my PA as well as what's coming out of me and my guitar physically so yeah it's uh it was it was interesting I planned for one hour I was going to do a one hour stream from 9 till 10 p.m and I'd set up my iPad thinking that I would be able to see comments and I was hoping that I could interact with people so I spend a lot of the the stream um, talking. Um, in fact, there might be five or more minutes of talking between every song. So if you don't like if you don't like the sound of my voice uh, when I'm talking, don't bother watching the watching the stream because there's there's a lot of my conversation. And I was expecting to at least get some feedback, like I could ask the audience something and then get some kind of a response and play off that. And it didn't work. <laughs> at all i could not see i got no comments coming through the ipad nothing at all i couldn't even tell if the stream was going so i had to change my whole format and instead take breaks so that i could check if the phone was still connected to the internet and streaming and so that i could scroll through and check some comments and maybe um, do something relevant off the back of that which then led to, because I could take breaks, it then led the stream to go from being an hour long to two hours and 46 minutes of, of continuous <laughs> streaming. <laughs> so it's, it's long. It is, it is a long stream. Uh, it even surprised me because once I got into it, I, I got carried away and I'm so used to playing two, three, four, five hour gigs live that once I, once I got into it and I was getting some requests and I was getting some feedback from people. Um, I had to, I could only play like six songs and then take a break and go check my phone. But, um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience and I came, I, I finally finished it. I finally decided that's it. This is the end. One last song. And then I'm going to wrap it up. And I was so exhausted I was the most tired that I've been since this whole lockdown business has, had happened because I realized that the stream hadn't stopped for about three hours and I hadn't stopped for about three hours. Um, I'd kept on my performance face and voice and attitude and it was just go, 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 go. And I, I was about ready to collapse on the floor and just <laughs> go to bed. Um, yeah, right. Afterwards. And it was, it was interesting. I checked it out and it, it got about 1,500 views over the course wow. of the stream. Obviously, that was a long time. Now, people could have tuned in for two seconds, two minutes. Um, some people were with me the entire time, even when I took the breaks. People didn't tune out. They just stayed tuned in. I could see the numbers were still there. And that was, that was really lovely. I had people ch- chime in at the end saying, hey, I've been here the whole time. And, um, you know, really great to see. Got some awesome feedback. Uh, so that I can hopefully learn and do it better in the future. And yeah, to try and see if I could make a dollar or two, because um, it is a significant chunk of time. I spent the whole day setting up for it. I did play effectively a full gig. I put a virtual tip jar. Um, PayPal have an option to create a personalized link 
that anybody can go to and just, if they have a PayPal account, just directly send you money. And uh, I had a couple of donations come through as well by the end of it, which which was really, really nice. So yeah, it was a, it was a hell of an experience. I it started off very confronting and nerve wracking, um, and then by the end of it, I almost didn't want it to end. And I'm kind of looking forward to what I can do with another one. But there's so much. There's way more that goes into it than I thought. It's not. Although you can just turn your camera around and go bang, there you go. You get what you get. You know, if you mm-hmm. wanted to. I can't help myself. I want things to come across a certain way and be the best that they realistically can. And um, it's a lot. It's a lot of work. Yeah, well, you watch someone like Amy who's got it down pat. She makes it look really easy, really comfortable. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it uh, sounds like yours went well. So, And your next one will go off even better, no doubt. Well, we'll, we'll see. I don't know if you've checked out the one um, from last night yet, but, you know, if you, it, is, it is very long. Um, but I like to think, I hope it's entertaining. So I'd be, I've, I ask people for feedback throughout the whole thing. I'd be very keen for some feedback from yourself just as to any aspect of it. So, yeah, if you get the time to have a listen, let me know. That'd be really cool. Yeah, well, obviously, if you had people tuning in from the start to the end, you must have held their attention somehow, so it must have been entertaining. I, 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 <laughs> Maybe they just miss you. There's, there's a lot of captive audience out there. <laughs> people have nowhere to go. Yeah. No, it's a great idea. I picked my time as well. I, I wanted to do it quite late. I wanted to do it after people had done anything that they might be doing for the day. So if they were going to cook dinner, it would have been done. I started in the end at about 9.15. So mm. it was late enough that you can't go out. There's, no, there's nothing much else that you're going to be doing by that point. You're going to watch something. Maybe you can watch me if you if yeah, you're yeah. so fancy. And, and people did. So, yeah, it was, it was nice. But I was prepared. I was chatting to my folks earlier in the week. They're like, what are you doing with yourself? You know, how are you keeping busy? And I mentioned that I was going to try and do a gig, a live stream gig. And I said, look, I'm prepared. There may be nobody. Maybe no one will watch it. Um, maybe I'll just be singing to myself in my kitchen for an hour. Um, but there are worse things. There are certainly worse things than that. I said, maybe, um, you know, I'll put up the donation thing, but maybe nobody will use it. I said, but it's, it's not really, I don't have anything else to do anyway. So it's, it's hardly a wasted exercise. It turned out far better than I expected. And I can't thank the people that tuned in and participated and were part of it enough because even though I couldn't see comments and stuff directly, by the end of it, I did really feel like I was talking to people on the other side of the camera. And I've watched a little bit of it back, and I hope that it comes across that way to the people that were watching. I, More than anything, I wanted to give an entertaining experience and make people feel like I wasn't just there going through the motions or I wasn't just there playing some songs, but I was there to spend some time with you, but on the other end mm-hmm. of the camera. And uh, it meant a lot that other people were there to spend some time with me. And be social the best we can be pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. So, now yeah, you've done a lot of work with um, Johnson Peters over the years. I have, uh, I have. Writing songs with him, learning from him, playing gigs with him. And yeah, tell us about your basic relationship with him over the years and 
how he's influenced you and such? Man, it's, it's crazy. It has been a, a very, very long time. I guess I've known John now for at least 15 years. Um, and we've, we've had varying levels of interaction over those years. Um, in fact, quite recently has probably been the least amount of time that I've seen or spent with John in, in a long time. Um, and that's, that's due to a whole number of factors. Um, but I first met him, he was my singing teacher. And for anyone that doesn't know, Johnson Peters was a, um, was a, a singer and a performer, um, I think most famous throughout the, the 70s, um, as in he, he made um, all of the, the hit telev- television shows during the day, even hosted some of them, you know, your countdowns and sounds and, um, and all of that. But he was even on the Graham Kennedy show back in his early life as uh, the Squeezebox Kid, um, playing a humongous piano accordion that was almost bigger than him, called Johnny LaPiccolo. But he wound up changing his name to Johnson Peters and became a, um, a hit singer, songwriter, performer, touring the world and doing amazing things. Now, um, I met him as a singing teacher. I knew none of this. And uh, I was an angsty, goth-inspired uh, teenager that uh, didn't like to talk to people. And his singing school was kind of frequented by... Um, you know, your northwestern suburbs, um, very, very normal, lovely children. And uh, I, I was just a little, a little outside of the mold, but uh, I was clearly passionate about what I did. And um, that must have made some kind of connection because we, we wound up getting along like a house on fire. And uh, I started recording in my own right, as in... Uh, became a, a studio engineer or started teaching myself about recording. And John had been doing that for many years. Um, like a lot of us do, it's just become something that you do over the years. And we wound up working on projects together, uh, recording projects and songwriting projects. Um, he gave me a space in his production house at one point in East Keelor, uh, which is a suburb of Melbourne. Um, and we did some amazing things. That's where we recorded, obviously, yours, Craig's um, first EP. Yep. And Wyong Street in the, the carpet box that was my production room. With the nice curtains. With the nice curtains, those blue curtains that I don't have anymore, which is really shattering. Oh, what happened? Did your mum make them from memory? My mum did make them. Uh, they, got, they got sold with the property, John, uh, John sold the property and it was, it was time. It had served its, its purpose, but, uh, growing family on his end and, um, wound up getting an amazing, amazing place, uh, a little further out and it had a huge, well, has a huge, um, production room out the back of it, which, uh, we moved into and, uh, my, my equipment's been there ever since. And I've done, Again, some amazing projects with, uh, with John in that space. We've also toured around the country over the last couple of years with, um, with some stage shows that John's the creative director of. One of them culminating in one of my proudest moments. It was kind of a childhood uh, ambition um, achieved. And that was performing at the Palais in St Kilda which I remember looking at the Palais at 18, 17, 18 years old, you know, just, just really playing in a shit-kicking garage band at the time, looking up at that place and going, one day, one day, 
I want to. It's a beautiful venue. I want to play that place. And um, although it may not have been in the way that I expected, um, I did get to play, perform on stage at that venue. For what was almost a sold out show. And that was, that was pretty damn special. And I may never do that again. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll do it um, in another context. Um, or it may be the only time, but either way, it was, it was nice to realize, uh, realize a, a childhood dream. So that was really, really damn cool. And absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So now we've, we've been involved in, in all manner of things over the years, um, and being good mates. And it's sad that things like, you know, what's going on currently keep, keep relationships like that apart um in fact i mean all my studio gear is still at john's at the moment i can't really access it at this point in time because you know it's just not it's not advisable to go way cross suburb for for something like that and john's got a john's got a family and older parents and um all the rest of it so you know it's it's probably probably best to keep things apart at this point in time but um yeah, him and his family are amazing people and uh, it's been incredible working with him over the years. Yeah, I remember John um, sort of ducking in and out of, uh, you know, the studio there where we were recording that EP and um, he definitely had some great insights and some um, really important uh, words of wisdom that he, you know, just bestowed upon us out of his own goodwill. Very um, much, very much. And I remember there was a harmony in one of these choruses. I think we had a three-part harmony going mm-hmm. um, in the song Hesitate. And I think from memory we'd nailed two of the harmonies, but there was that third one we couldn't quite get. And he came in and spent some time with us trying to get that. And it obviously worked out really well in the end. But, yeah, just his experience and knowledge as a vocalist himself really helped us out at that point. Absolutely. He's an incredible arranger, one of those, one of those people that can see parts in music as well as hear them. So it could potentially, you know, write, write a score or um, certainly, <laughs> certainly notate out, um, you know, a song in his head and on paper without having to hear it. Uh, and that is that is something that you know we should we should all aspire to. They say the best the best songwriters, the best composers, um, don't write for an instrument. They write mm-hmm. what suits the song best. Uh, the best composers out there know the range of the instruments uh, that they're writing for. They know what instruments they want to use and could construct an entire piece without ever uh, it being heard. And if you've got the um, if you've got players of the level required you could set that piece in front of them with it never having been played before and it would sound the way that you hear it in your head that is the difference between a composer and a songwriter right well he was such a busy guy but he still took the time to you know help us out in these certain little moments and just poke his head in and see what we're up to so you know i was really grateful for that he'd do anything for anybody he's uh yeah very, very generous with his with his time and his wisdom. So by the time I was ready to record my debut album in uh, 2015, you had moved studios. You'd basically moved into your house where you are now. So we didn't have John around at that time to sort of poke his head in. We just had your cat and you and me and we went for it and recorded a full album. 
which came out really, really great, really awesome. I'm still proud of that album. And we did get John on there for a squeeze box track, didn't we? We certainly did. <laughs> which once I, when I first heard it, because I wasn't there when he recorded it, it was just you and him. Yeah. And when, when you showed me, I'm like, wow, I've never heard a squeeze box on one of my songs before. <laughs> it really uh, changed up the dynamic. So, but it, it sounds great. You know, I got used to it and I loved it. So, yeah, it's actually one of my favourite tracks. It's um, it, it's very hard to find a good squeeze box player. Yeah. And it just turns out that he's one of the best in the country, if not the world. So, um, yeah, I, I think I was I was working on a mixing your song when we were in the new place because we recorded most of it in my house, um, did all the, the recording sessions there, but I did the mixing in um, in the new studio when it was set up. Yeah, I mean, John John was there for pretty much the whole thing because we we're right next to each other, like our, our desk setups and everything are right next to each other in that space and. Yeah, he just couldn't help himself. It's like, you know what I hear in that song? Just some bloody piano accordion. <laughs> like, if you say so, mate. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. we, just, we just set up a mic, probably the same mic I use for your vocals, the Shure ASM7 or something like that. I just, just chucked it there and he stood in front of it and just, you know, pulled that out. And there it is. But it adds, you know, adds a nice, unique flavor to the album. I was always really, really happy with that album, actually. Um, really happy with how it came how it came out. It was an interesting mix between what we'd done before, which was a bit more production heavy and not quite as ambient, and then the album was like way way more ambient and um, a bit more raw in a way. It still had pr- some production elements going on, but it was uh, there was a lot of space and air. It sounds very natural that album yeah a lot of the songs obviously the way i'd written them were kind of left open for a lot of um i guess what you'd call embellishments what you would call embellishments you know with percussion and and that sort of thing and you have a really good ear for for that sort of thing you know i could play you a song and straight away in your head you're hearing all this extra stuff whether it be percussion or yeah, maybe harmonies or guitar lines and that sort of thing. So, yeah, a lot of those extra things on that album you could sort of hear and really brought to life. Yeah, it was awesome to work on, only um, only because you were, especially with that first EP, I think, because um, it was a new direction. So it was all kind of, well, let's let's see where we can go with this because there were no preconceived notions. It was yeah, just... Yeah don't really know i've got these songs don't know how they're going to sound don't really know how i want them to sound so and you gave me the freedom to um kind of explore some different production elements and put in things that you certainly wouldn't have thought of and maybe you know at first if i'd explain them to you at first you'd go i don't i don't know i don't know about that that's that's not really what i hear for the song but then when it was in there it yeah kind of kind of created a um some stylistic elements that I think you, you've maybe rolled on with a little bit since. I think there's some, some elements that have carried through a lot of the, the releases since you changed to Acoustic Fox that kind of add to what that is. And it's, it's, uh, although it is a man with a guitar at the heart of it, there's a lot more to that. And um, I, think, I think there's a sonic identity to your music um, that 
you could know when it's an acoustic fox song without, you know, being told. Mm. Okay. I know with that first EP, after that, or even for the launch itself, um, I basically put a band together for that. And a lot of those elements were your idea, like with um, with the cajon, with Seth on the cajon, uh, James on the djembe, um, obviously yourself on bass and um, some harmony vocals. And I think we had Jared at, on guitar, lead guitar at one point for a little while, which went really well. You know, it was a huge band and it sounded great. Sort of after that, we, we stripped it back a bit to... Mm, probably myself, you, Seth, and James for a while. But yeah, we had we had different variations of sort of the same band uh, for the next couple of years, really, didn't we? Playing a lot of gigs. Yeah, it was really good times. Um, it was. It was really good. Just, uh, yeah, yeah, really, really nice, nice jamming. Um, you know, especially with Seth, that's a connection that I've carried on the you know these years past as well. But uh, it was it was nice to be. I've not been a supporting musician very much. Um, I've I've done some stuff for Amy over the years, of course. Uh, this being Amy Francis, played guitar and bass for her over the years. But uh, yeah, kind of doing bass and backing vocals with yourself, and then getting to do it on songs that I've been part of the production of, like the recording process of. That was that was really cool to have like a secondary project where I didn't have to be. I didn't have to be the artist or the or the focus, but um, you know, I still felt invested in it because of everything that went into it. It was yeah, it was really nice. Kind of put you in the role of like a conductor or something, a little bit, because I think because you had recorded those songs or most of them. Mm. Yeah, uh, a lot of them at that time. Um, but uh, but no, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you remember. I just like to uh, like to like to play bass and vibe with Seth. That was that was my job. Yeah, he's a machine on that cajon. Oh, Still to this day, I've never seen anyone play it like him. No, no, certainly not in um, certainly not in that way. I mean, I'm sure there are you know amazingly proficient players out there, but it's because it's it's only recently become a Western instrument, um, and it's and people don't use it the way that it's supposed to be used a lot of the time. They use it in such a such a simple simplistic way look at a car on and go well it makes a kick sound and it makes a snare sound so let's have kick and snare well what about everything else what about all of the the flavors in between and seth manages to you know, dance that line in between where he fills so much space with what is you know a basic uh a, a relatively basic instrument that doesn't have any pitch but i'd be very interested to see Cajon players from around the world where the instrument is designed or written into music more, where it's, um, you know, more intricately linked. I think there'd be some incredible stuff out there. But yeah, for what we've got available in our little pocket of Melbourne, I'd say Seth is, you know, way, way up there as one of the preeminent Cajon players around. Yeah, he's just great to play with as well. He just brings such such an energy and it just... If if you mic it up properly at a gig, as you would know, it sounds it sounds huge. <laughs> it's massive. It's great, damn straight. We've had we've had a lot of fun doing even um, cover gig duo stuff. The two of us, you know, we we would take off just in in my little car and travel three hours up to Achuca, or you know, we'd go we'd go out to Stall or um, Bendigo or like anywhere in between and do 
you know, a three hour cover gig, just him and me, you know, smash a few drinks, have some laughs and then just, just revel in the fact that the two of us with an acoustic guitar and a cajon could get an entire room dancing to whatever we wanted. You know, we just pick a song out and then we knew that we had the crowd like we could, we could do with them what we, what we wanted. We were only able to do that because of the connection that we had as performers, which is something that he brings to most projects that he goes into, like whoever he plays with. He just has that reassuring thing about him. It's like, dude, I got you. doesn't matter what mm-hmm. you do. doesn't matter what you change up. I'm going to, I'll follow. I'll figure it out. It's all good. Yeah, he's very much a, a jam player, isn't he? Yeah, and that's, that's the saving grace. He doesn't freak out. He's not like... Uh, hassling you over minutia of oh, what, what's the song going to do here and what happens in this section. It's just, I'll figure it out. It'll be good. It'll be cool. We'll make it work. And then he delivers on that. He doesn't just fall apart when it, when it comes to that. He, he actually delivers. So, yeah, pretty outstanding. Well, after that first EP of mine, like you said, it was sort of a starting ground of a new sound or whatever, a new era. Yeah, with that EP, we played a lot of gigs and his Cajon sound became the basis for the next two albums of mine uh, in terms of percussion. So we stayed away from drum kits because that just totally changes the sound, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and the Cajon, we sort of decided, is such a raw sound. And if you mix a little bit of djembe with it and then some percussion instruments, you know, like cymbals and shakers and that sort of thing, you can get such an amazing raw acoustic sound that is so much more interesting than just a, a drum kit, I guess. It is. There's a lot of textures going on, different layered textures, and uh, you're inclined to pay more attention to them because uh, I guess everyone's a bit more used to a drum kit we've all heard it many many times over and although there's like every part of the drum kit is a different texture and should be treated as a different instrument we we do kind of in our brain just just consolidate it to one thing but you can do so much with those different percussion elements and when we had like the djembe of, of james playing off against the cajon of seth and then whatever weird stuff i'd chuck on top of that um it was just always something that made you jump back in you know, that kept you, kept you going throughout the song um, rather than just letting it get stale. Yeah, no, it just totally steered me away from even thinking about getting a drum kit. It was just so much more interesting getting these different elements in. And I remember Seth uh, with the first album, Guiding Light, um, he knocked out a lot of the tracks in one day, I think, and, and he was sick. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. I do. <laughs> I remember having the boys in the in the living room just to that side, that way. Yep. 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 Um, through there, smashing it out, and yeah, it was it was um, it was really good because they they did the best that that they could. I got I think the best out of them, but given the nature of the project as well, which was you know it's it's not like you're bringing in a well rehearsed band to record an album. Yeah. yeah you're bringing in players to add to an album the best that they can. And so I got some awesome takes out of them, but I, I th- remember telling you at the time, because, um, you know, you're always mad keen for updates, like on the album the whole way along. And I was like, mate, you have no idea what I have to go through getting this percussion to where it needs to be. 
things like you know i wound up having every every beat of every percussion instrument you know like separated and like put into a, a strict timeline to make it sound like they've been playing together for 10 years yeah rather than coming in for one day having heard the songs a couple of times and that's that's the the beauty of it but they they gave me such good performances that all i could do in the end was probably make it 10 to 15 percent better it's about it was already 85 percent of the way there like and once they heard it on the album they could then learn those parts from the album and that became like the the doctrine of the song it's like okay this is now what we do live because before then it was all kind of up in the air it's like well we could we could do this we could do that we could we don't know what's going to make it to the album but once you got it and that's the song that's what we play yep yeah well you you uh got the perfect mix on that album i reckon of uh seth james and the uh added percussion stuff that you did so um it's really interesting sounding i think and it really fills out the album well and complements the song so it's just yeah really proud of of that album man it's it, it was a it was a hell of a thing and i'm really glad to have been part of it it's I, I really think about that particular album as a snapshot of a moment in time. So it's not that you would ever do that album the same way again. It's not that you may ever do any album that way again. But what that album sounds like, how it was done, what it is, and everything around it, you listen to it and it's, it's a moment in time. It's a, just... It really is. It's a little time capsule and it sounds like... A space and what I, I think maybe a little bit of that which was kind of forced upon us but also wound up being I think a, a really cool um, blessing as well as we recorded pretty much all the instruments in the same room different times yeah. but in the same room and the same space it's all the same sonic environment it, it just it really it, it's it's a very it's a comfy album like you can put it on and just get into that zone and from start to finish you're in it it doesn't jolt around. It doesn't. It doesn't change up on you too much. You know, you don't get, you don't get thrown from one big sound to to something completely different. It's um, yeah. It's it's really it's really nice. And every time I listen to it, it just takes me back to a very particular point in time. The EP does that as well, but for different reasons. The EP is a bit more sterile in sound because it was it was everything was recorded in quite a dead environment, and we added sound to it, but it's um compared to the album like the album is so lively it just jumps out of the speakers at you and it gives you a sense of space um and that's that's something really cool for me so yeah well you can sort of hear that space in your voice right now i don't know if it'll come across you know on the podcast but you're sitting in your kitchen where we did some of that recording or you know just next to the kitchen there and it's such a ambient space it's pretty amazing it is well. It's a it's a hundred and something year old cottage. So mm. you know those floorboards speak, man. And we had a rain stick on the album too, on the last track that I found in hard rubbish, which is probably one of the most epic tracks that I've committed to tape <laughs> in terms of uh, yeah length, and that was a really important track to me um, and. You just nailed it for me, so I was stoked that we did that, and we, you know, it was over seven minutes long, but uh, I thought 
I don't care. This is my song, uh, the one song that I'm not going to sort of chop up too much and try and get it shorter for the sake of being shorter. So yeah, um, and I, I think it finishes off the album pretty well. Damn straight. It's uh, it's very it's very emotive, and all the parts are subtle. It's it's such a slow tempo, um, but it it builds so incredibly. And those those sound effects, not just the rain stick, but like the the art. Well, not artificial, but the samples that we put in of the, um, you know, the rain and the thunder and the lightning. Oh, it sounds huge. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. So, Cole Clark guitars, you've got a couple? Uh, yes, yes, I certainly do. Love them to bits. You've got a custom electric that they made for you? Yeah, it's, um, the body was already made. So I didn't, I didn't get to choose the body as spec. I mean, the, the shapes, uh, the shapes were what they were. So you couldn't choose your own shape, for example. And mine is a, a hollow baby, is what it's called. It's basically a Stratocaster shape, but uh, fully hollow. I got sent because they were phasing out the electrics, and I hit up the factory, and they sent me photos of the bodies that they had left that hadn't been used and this one in particular jumped out at me it was emerald green and it was like perfectly book matched amazing grain emerald green just just beautiful and it was bunya wood queensland bunya and i said it must be that one like i must i must have it they sent me a red one as well and i think a blue one um you know all all different uh all different stuff but that that one in particular just absolutely jumped out at me and um, I said, amazing, I, I want that one with the, the Kinman P90 pickups, and those are made by a dude, I can't remember his, his full name, but part of it is Kinman, and he makes these way complicated, incredible, noiseless single coils up in Queensland. So dual P90s in that, some of the tastiest pickups you'll ever hear. And then um, I got to got to choose my own neck, so I had a blackwood neck um, with an ebony top. Um, I'd never had a guitar with an ebony uh, fretboard before, and that was that was just something I really, 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 really wanted. Um, and then I wanted to get it with uh, no fret markers, because I kind of wanted to go for a bit of a violin esque. Look, I, I even considered getting it fretless, but I decided against that in the end because it be, it becomes a less versatile guitar when it's fretless. Yep. It's very very just specific if you if you go that route. And yeah, it's even got a unique string gauge. I use eleven to forty nine, so wow. it's um, it's very even across the board. You know, the difference from eleven to forty nine as opposed to well, I guess nine nine to forty two is pretty close. That's like a standard Telecaster gauge, but it's, it, it feels like an acoustic guitar when you play it, but you can rip into it like an electric. It's just, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful instrument to play. And it's a, it's a crying shame that they don't make them anymore, but they just weren't, it was so hard to change people's minds or make them go, well, why don't I just, if I'm going to get a Stratocaster, why don't I just get a Stratocaster? How about because this one is made in Melbourne from Australian uh-huh. timber by amazingly talented, um, you know, guitar manufacturers and luthiers um, out of Australian wood, you know, it's a, it just seems like a no-brainer to me. But mm-hmm. um, the price difference was a bit higher because they, they are a much higher quality instrument than 
your standard, you know, American Stratocaster. Certainly way, way above your Mexican Stratocaster. But if you've got a kid that can pick up a Mexican standard strut for 900 bucks or a Cole Clark um, hollow baby or they, they did a solid body one as well for like two to two and a half grand, you know, what are you going to do? You know, oh, hey, I still get, I get a Fender. Cool. That's a beautiful guitar. How lucky are we that we've got Cole Clark and Maiden in Australia? Mate, not just in Australia, but Melbourne and not just Melbourne, but like <laughs> 30 <laughs> kilometers from where we live. It's insane. Yeah. You know, I go, yeah. I, yeah. I go to the yeah. factory just to get my guitar serviced or set up or the strings changed. So you were there, you were there last week, yeah? Down at the Cole Clark factory? I think it might've been the week before last now. It was about a week and a half ago on a Friday. Right. Um, was that just for a, a setup of the electric and a restring? And no, I took in I took in two of two of my Cole Clarks. Um, yeah, I took in my workhorse acoustic, which is a Angel um, Cole Clark Angel Two in Bunya and Blackwood, and that one's been with me since two thousand and twelve. She's a beast. She's seen the, the vast majority of my gigs, especially recently. Um, copped a few too many dints for my liking, but then again, that's that's what they're that's what they're there for. That's what happens, yeah. That is what happens. It seems every time I pick up the guitar lately, there's some new scratch dent mark on it and mm. I just can't keep up anymore. It's, you know, but <laughs> it's it's personalised. It's it's part of me. So I took that, that baby in, which I keep in D standard tuning, so two semitones below standard. And I'm taking right. my um, Hollow Baby, the, the green electric guitar, because... Although I don't, I don't play that one nearly as much as I should. I used to in my band days um, when I had the Michael Yule band, the MY band, um, whatever I was calling it at the time. It doesn't get as much love or attention as it should. And so I thought, well, let's, let's go get you restrung and fretboard oiled and that. Cole Clark would, were doing a great promotion, which was for $40. You could bring in a Cole Clark guitar and get, um, get it restrung get the fretboard the the neck tweaked if it needed it you know if the action was a bit off and get the fretboard oiled um but considering how expensive the strings are anyway it, it was a no-brainer just to go down and get that done so pretty cheap pretty cheap very um you know elixir strings on both of those say what you will about yeah. elixirs but they last like crazy and i think they maintain their tone pretty uh-huh. damn well some people hate them but i love them I'm all for the elixirs. Actually, I um, I string up my acoustics with elixirs, and a couple of weeks ago, I pulled out um, the old Epiphone Les Paul electric that I used for many, many years. Um, it was sort of in its case under my bed because I just don't play a lot of electric these days. Um, the strings were pretty awful on it, not as bad as you might think, but definitely not playable. So tonight, I actually. Took old, took off the old strings and put on some new elixirs and um, oiled the fretboard. Gave it a bit of a polish, and um, I'm gonna break it out tomorrow for a bit of a play. Fantastic! Um, but um, no, I'm all for the elixirs, man. I'm I'm definitely their top of my selection for sure. Absolutely, man. I I they last me, and this will sound disgusting to most guitar players, but I'll get um, two years. Out of a set of elixirs. 
two years. Oh man, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will get anywhere up to two years, and that is for me. Mm. Under normal circumstances, um, that is that is several hundred gigs. Mm. If not, if if you include every little performance, that's potentially <laughs> it's potentially five five hundred plus gigs. Well. I don't doubt that that could happen, but I probably wouldn't wait that long personally. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just you know um, when they don't sound they because they they just don't, they never sound that bad. They never sound bad for me. No, I think if you keep playing it, they'll be okay. Yeah, but like if you play it for six months, leave it for a few, and then go back to them, they might not be definitely so great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I've got. Um, a set on my a drop D court guitar, which I don't play that often anymore, and they've gone a bit funny. So, yeah. which is totally understandable. But if I'd have kept playing it like I do with my mate in Blackwood, mm-hmm. um, you know, they've been on there for months and months, and they're still great. Yeah. Well, when I when I come out the other side of this, um, I've got plans on adopting yet another Cole Clark. Yeah, you were telling me about it a couple of weeks ago. Oh, no. No, I wasn't. Uh, sure? No, nope, because uh, I, I changed my mind when I when I got to the factory um, a week and a half ago and um, <laughs> bloody CEO Miles, Miles Jackson, he, um, he shows me one of, their, one of their new innovations. And I'd seen it before. It's basically they're, they're putting as an option humbuckers on their acoustic guitars right now this is as well as their standard pickup system yeah it's not an either or it is you still get their normal amazing internal um, piezo and face brace and condenser mic three-way acoustic pickup system but then they are also throwing an incredibly high quality um humbucker between the bridge and the sound hole and on the face, you get your standard like electric guitar volume and tone knobs, like you would in a Telecaster, mm. and a big switch. And that's a three-way switch. So it means if you flick it one way, it's just acoustic. If you flick it the other way, it's acoustic and the humbucker. And if you flick it the other way, it's just the humbucker. And mm. I'd, seen, I'd seen one of them out around the scene, and I thought, that's disgusting. That's blasphemy. How dare you throw a humbucker on an acoustic guitar? That's horrible. <laughs> I don't like it. And also the guy just wasn't using it. Um, so I thought this, it's just it's just gross. I, what a cheap parlor trick. Now, Miles put in my hands a beautiful Cole Clark Angel 2 and took me over to uh, a bench where they had set up a Vox valve amp. I can't remember the exact model. And then just like a PA speaker, a high quality PA speaker, right? So the humbucker output went to the valve amp and the acoustic output went to the high quality PA speaker. And he turns them both on and he goes, have a play. I start to have a play. I'm like, oh God, no, it's too much. No, it's terrible. Um, But as I started to tune things in and go, all right, where where am I putting where am I putting this? I've got two different speakers with two different completely different sounds coming out from the same guitar, and so I brought the 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 humbucker right back to just like a nice overdrivey crunch, just like a light overdrive, you know, and dulled it off a little bit, 
with the tone. And then through the PA speaker, there's just a beautiful, rich, full sound of, because Cole Clark's pickup system is ridiculous. Um, you know, you, you get three pickups just as per standard um, in that thing. Mm-hmm. And you can blend them any way that you want. So now you've got four pickups. <laughs> um, and, I, and I finally, I found a tone. I just went, this is insane. This is, this sounds so good. Like so good because it's, it sounds like you've got, you know, just, just when you've got two guitarists playing with each other, one of them's rocking an electric guitar and one of them's rocking an acoustic mm. guitar, both mm-hmm. with perfect tone. You're not trying to get the acoustic to sound like it's distorted or you're not trying to get an, acu- an electric guitar to sound like an acoustic guitar. It's like you've got both yep. simultaneously and you can do what you like with them and tailor them to your own desire. And I went, that is a game changer. That is insane. And, um, so I'm going to get a Cole Clark Angel 3, their top model, Angel 3 in full Blackwood. Yep. Yep. And, uh, with, with the humbucker. Cool. With the humbucker. And then I'll have to put together a whole new pedal board that's got like some amazing valve overdrive, you know, on it for the electric and then just this sweet signal path for the for the normal acoustic and it'll just give you from one natural instrument like double the sound it's incredible when i got it to where it was right before then i just didn't understand i didn't get it i didn't like it and as soon as i found that sweet spot i went oh my god (laughs) it's all over i don't think i can go back this is (laughs) what do you mean my guitar doesn't already have this this is insane (laughs) oh shit so pretty crazy so are they released yet? Yeah, yeah no, they're, they're already yeah. out there. Yeah, they're out there. Okay. It's just, um, I don't know whether they did it for the American market because they're huge in America as well. They're really pushing hard and they're getting distributed by Korg, I think, over in America and worldwide. Um, and God, Americans like weird things. Like mm-hmm. the guitars that we go into a guitar shop and look at and go, I like it, that's sexy. It's a completely different demographic <laughs> over there. They go in there and look at... Like that's that's why Cole Clark do just black guitars, like painted black, because there are people that want an acoustic that's just matte black. Can you imagine? I used to I used to like that. Can you imagine going in there and spending three thousand dollars on a painted black acoustic guitar mm. when you know how good the wood looks underneath? Mm, true. Yeah. Yeah. Seems criminal, but look, everybody likes something a bit different. Um, Anyway, I, I hated the thought of that idea, but now I'm completely sold. And when I get that next guitar, it'll just justify the purchase even more because of how much more I can do with it. You know, I can run that into my Fender valve amp. It gives me an excuse to bring that out of the house. And it just sounds like an awesome Telecaster, you know, rocking into wow. that amp, but still have the perfect crystal clear acoustic sound as well. So, so were we talking about maybe 12 string guitars a couple of weeks ago. I was ago. saying that, yeah, yeah. I, I was saying that I was pretty keen because Cole Clark do the Fat Lady 2 as a 12 right. string. And yeah, I was, I was really tempted. I thought that that might be my next purchase, that I was going to get a 12 string, um, make it a Cole Clark Fat Lady 2, like what Brett Frank has. Um, yeah. You know, because he, he plays that thing like a mofo. In fact, he's a guy that needs a humbucker on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, once he sees you with yours. Oh, no, right. Yeah, he'll go back there and go, <laughs> can it be done? Can you make me a 12-string humbucker for this? <laughs> I'm sure uh, I'm sure it can be done. Yeah. I wonder if you'll have it by the time we get out and play again. God damn. I don't know. 
I don't know. They're still going oh. strong. I mean, there's still there's still demand around the world. So. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's hope it's soon. Damn straight, man. We uh, we better call it, man. I'm I'm ready for bed. <laughs> yeah, it's been. Uh, <laughs> you can see how my live stream went from one hour to three hours, can't you? Oh man! Well, I've clocked up um, more than two and a half hours on the on the recorder here, so we'll see what the. But that's a lot of uh, Skype dropouts and that sort of thing. So yep, yep. Michael, Michael Yule, thank you very much for coming on, sir. MichaelYule.com. Yeah, Michael Yule. All of the things at hashtag whatever. Just uh, just go Michael Yule music and you can't help but find me. It's been a pleasure to be on Fox on the Wire. First time. Thank you very much. Yeah, man, we'll do it again. We'll do it again, and we'll we'll. Uh, I reckon we do that. You know, talk about some of our favorite albums. It'll be good to to do that with a producer and a musician, and we can just really dissect some of our favorite albums. It'd be incredible. Do you know what we should do? Hmm. I'm not joking. Um, we should yeah. hit up Nick Lowney, the producer of uh, Freak Show and Neon Ballroom. Yeah, I wonder what he's doing these days. Well, it's um, I don't know. I'm sure he's I'm sure he's doing some amazing stuff. But at this point in time, he's probably doing like like the rest of us in the career. Fuck all. <laughs> very little. Then again, he might have some amazing projects of his own on the go. But um, I I don't mm. know the guy personally. I don't know a huge amount about him, but I I know his work. And um, I've I've seen his behind the scenes, and he he was always someone that I wanted to work with. He seemed like a, an amazing person, and you know what? I I wouldn't be terribly surprised if he might be keen to come and have a chat about some mm. of his past work. Yeah, I remember him from a, a lot of the documentaries that they made. I think the main one being maybe Freak Show and Neon Ballroom. Yeah. I'm trying to think which one it was now, but it was always great to watch those sort of behind-the-scenes things. I found them really interesting, uh, especially with Silverchair. Yeah, man. So, so, yeah. Big guiding force. Right, lovely guy. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show, Michael. Peace out. We'll uh, catch you guys again soon for another episode of Fox on the Wire. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye.